boys and girls and welcome back to the Disclosed Podcast. You are currently listening to episode four and if you know your stuff then you will know that this is due to be our first guest episode. As you can tell by the title, we have delivered and I won't lie, today's going to be a banger, an absolute banger. There's no introduction that can do this man justice. From working as an undercover officer to IRA bombings, he's held the license to kill and trained with a Glock 17 as well as an MP5. He's worked with all the members of the royal family, both in the UK and overseas. All of this and more to come in this episode, so stay tuned. But first, of course, you all know the drill by now. I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Max and Owen. Max, how are you? I'm doing very good. I'm very excited to get this episode started. Owen, how about you? Yeah, very good. Also excited to get our first episode on. It's been a long time coming, so yeah. Well, I feel like we've got a lot to go through, so there's no time to waste. So for the man himself, John, mate, how are you doing? Oh, yeah, yeah, good, good. Nice to be here. Thank you very much for coming on. No problem. Thanks for the invite. So we know you have a lot of stories, a hell of a lot. We've had a, a brief read through some of the stories you've written down on a Word document very kindly for us. Um, where'd you like to start? Does it make sense to start right from the beginning? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I, uh, you know, it's, I've done, well, just over 30 years in the police, so there's quite a lot of stories uh, in relation to that. The good thing about the police is that you can... You can join various departments within that, so you don't just end up in one one job the same. So I'll go through a few few stories, few situations I've been in. Um, some of the, hopefully, there's some of my former colleagues listening that will be appreciate, you know, what what we've done and what we've how we've served the community over the many many years that we've done it. Police are getting a bit of a battering at the moment, and hopefully, people will realise that we're all out there to help everybody. Really. I mean, like I said, I, I, you know, I started in, well, I, I came down from London to London from a, um, from a small, from a small village, having grown up there, really. Yeah. I wanted, you know, I wanted, initially I wanted to join the, the armed forces and uh, was unsuccessful at that. And then literally on the day I got my rejection letter, I do advertisement in the paper saying that the Metropolitan Police are advertising for, for police officers. I thought London, I'd never been to London before. I was 20 years old. I thought, well, that's the place to go. You know, that's where it all happens. We've all seen the films, you know, the Sweeney, the professionals, things like that. So growing up as a as a young lad, it was something that was exciting. And I thought that's the place to go. So I headed off, you know, went straight to training school at 20 years of age. Of course. So you join up in uh, 1989. At that time, was that a kind of thing that was common amongst your friends? Did you know many people that also wanted to join the police? Well, I put my career choice really and I, bl- I blame the film Top Gun. Top Gun, I think, came out in the mid-80s um, and my, I, like many, many kids of my age, wanted to become fighter pilots as a result of that. And I blame Top Gun really because there was a massive application of people that wanted to do it and I obviously didn't cut the mustard. So um, a lot of people were looking for alternative careers and yeah that was one of the ones that you know it was exciting it was it was it was there was a lot of programs on like there are now really about the police so it it did attract many people as I mentioned I didn't I had no idea about London I didn't know north from the south etc so when we were at training school which is about 20 weeks long you learn all the elements of of sort of uh uniform policing stopping and searching yep. people and things like that and the law obviously is a lot of classroom work but they they actually ask you where you want to be posted and I, I'd never heard of any of the stations apart from West Ham because of the football club so I just put West Ham down um, and I ended up working in that area for five or six years really 
Um, probably the best years of my life. The first time you join police is is a cracking time. Real good fun. Did that almost make it a bit more exciting that you didn't know the streets and you had to familiarise yourself with it? Yeah, did that um, almost make it a bit more exciting for you that you didn't know the uh, in, in the environment and it was a bit more like it was a sense of an adventure almost coming down um, south to London? Yeah, I'd say back then, I mean, we're now very early 90s. Oddly, and I don't know why this was, most people that joined the police, London Metropolitan Police in those days, were from outside of London. So there was there was a load of us from the Midlands, loads from Scotland, Wales, Liverpool. So not many people knew London well. There was obviously some Londoners, but, but not many. So we all... We all had each other's backs. We all looked after each other. Uh, we all socialised together afterwards, and it's a very, very social job. You're spending a lot of time with each other, going through some quite harrowing situations, but you know you sort of work hard, play hard. It's you, you do socialise with each other. In fact, in those early days, you live in you live in shared accommodation. So we, you know, there's 15 or 20 of us that we all work together. We all live together in. in what they used to call a section house, which is just like a, a you know, a shared accommodation block. So literally, you go to work, you'd work together, and then you'd come home back to the shared accommodation, and then you'd go to the pub generally. So it was, yeah, happy times, good times. Within that first year, maybe first two years of, you've done your training, and now you're out on the streets of London working as a police officer. Can you recall your first call that you were sent out to, or the first crime scene? that was really quite quite one that will stick in your brain for the rest of your life yeah definitely I mean I still remember it now and I still remember guy's name um it, he was a, an elderly gentleman that neighbors had rang up and said that he he'd not been seen and I forced entry into his house and he'd been unfortunately for him he'd been tied up during a burglary and he died as a result of that and that I I can still see that scene now I can still see that guy now um, and it's things like that that make you realize why you're a police officer. There's things that, yeah, um, really dig down deep into the core of, 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 of right and wrong. You know, it was important for me at that time to, to catch those responsible. And we did, and we did, and they, they went to prison as a result of that. But, um, yeah, I mean, what, 30, 32, 33 years later, I can still, I can still picture that now. Would you say that was the, one of your first experiences that like kind of kicked you into really like almost you have to stand up and actually kind of realise what the world is about and what actually goes on rather than seeing it in movies? Yeah, that's a, that's a good good question, Max. Yeah, there's a lot of things in movies that you think are real life, but it's not only it's only when you get out there really and, and you walk in the streets at 3 a.m. in the morning on your own in East London and you know you you're getting calls to people breaking in you don't know how many people are breaking in at that time all you had was a, a tunic and a, a wooden truncheon and a whistle to get some help and a small radio that didn't really work very well so you know it was important that we all looked after each other um there was there was danger out there and unfortunately you know a, a colleague of mine and a friend even after i'd only been in the police for two years was stabbed stabbed and killed by a, a handbag thief and um yeah that that again that affected everyone involved and again it realized it made you realize that it, it can be a dangerous situation when you're walking around in your uniform and you t you're early 20s you think 
you think you're indestructible until something like that happens and then it brings it home to you that you know at the end of the day you're just flesh and blood like everyone else does something like that having a mate of yours being stabbed to death like that does that affect you does that affect the morale of your team does that maybe make you a bit more conscious of um, your decisions going about yeah oh yeah no definitely had an impact uh, massive impact and oddly and you a lot of people listening to this will probably find it very difficult to uh, to believe and to understand but at that time you wouldn't get you wouldn't tend to get arrested if you had a knife which when you you know when we look at where we are nowadays with knife crime and some of the stabbings that gone on uh, oddly in the early 90s if someone had a small knife you couldn't as a police officer you couldn't arrest them all you could do was write out a ticket and sum, summons them to court. And it was incidents like uh, my friend being killed that helped change the law, to be honest. Um, and that, that, that did soon change, as a res- not, not just as a result of that, but it was important. And that, that's taken us to where we are today, which whereby the, the, the police and the, and the courts have quite a strict... Um, approach to people carrying knives and rightly so rightly so as we're talking about experiences uh, what would you say is your first like really exhilarating experience that you have to make split second decisions in deciding what what way your team moves or what way you moved in order to catch a thief again going back to the 90s we car car theft was rife to be honest They, they didn't have the the systems and technology that we have today and there was Astra's GTEs and Fiesta XR2s, things like that were getting stolen on a on a on a nightly basis. And to be honest, it was predominantly the same criminals in our area. We knew them, they knew us, and it became a bit of a, a cat and mouse type situation. And to be honest, that's you know, as a young young lad, that's why that's why you join the police. You you want to drive fast, you want to flash your blue lights and you want to chase cars and chase criminals and that's if you ask anybody, any police officer, that's that's what you want to do. And I, you know, I recall one particular incident where I was, you know, we would tended to be paired up in a car, and we pulled up next to this uh, red XR2. Again, I remember it. I looked across and I thought, crikey, that, those lads are young. You know, next thing they're off straight through the red light. We're we're in a marked police car, we're chasing them right across East London. They're, you know, they're doing 70, 80 through the 30s, top speed of an XR2 in them days, through every single red light. Streets were quiet, sort of 3am in the morning, you know, and we chased them all the way through Rotherhide Tunnel. And if you know Rotherhide Tunnel, anybody, then it, it actually bends quite sharply into places in the middle. And this car was literally bouncing off the walls of the tunnel straight through. And he actually blew up the engine um, and it ground to a halt really in, in South London. And when we got hold of them, they, they transpired to be two 14-year-old lads that had done a burglary at a house. All they'd rec- all they'd managed to steal was the car and two garden gnomes out of the bloke's garden that were in the boot of the car. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I mean, one of the first, you know, one of the first bits of evidence I bagged up was two stolen garden gnomes. Doesn't get, doesn't get much more Gucci than that. How long did this take then? You, what you started in East London, all the way across East London, ended in South London. How long were were these maybe compared to other chases that you would have done? Yeah, most most tend to finish fairly quickly. The the guys, you know, the young lads know that they're quicker on their foot, their feet than us old coppers, you know. So they tend to stop and run off fairly quick. But these these two were uh, fancy their chances. Maybe they came from South London and came over over the water to to do the burglary. And uh, so this one, yeah, was probably twenty 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 two minutes. 
And, you know, what you'll find is that, especially at those times of night, is that you'll get you'll go through various police districts. And if anyone's ever seen the Blues Brothers, you'll end up with another car tagged on the back and then another car tagged on the back. And I, I recall that when we finally got them to a stop, there was probably something like 15 cars, police cars all behind. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's wow. mental. Were the police cars fast back, uh, back in the 90s? Yeah, well, they're relative. So... We had something called panda cars, which were just little tiny cars that drove around, you know, and you you went from crime to crime. And they were predominantly mini, mini metros, which were probably the equivalent of like a mini now. Uh, and then we got the, the the much quicker pursuit vehicles, which were generally, they're either Golf GTIs, Sierras, which um, at the time were like a high performance Ford, Rovers. So any, uh, you know, Different cars had different, or different districts, sorry, had different types of cars. If you're in a really urban area, you'd have a fairly nippy, fast one. So um, you've spent a few years on the ground. Um, Where did you go from being a copper on the streets? Where did that go um, into your next kind of chapter of your career in the police? Yeah, well, another, another incident that, you know, flagged up to me was where we had a, a, a quite a major disorder on an, a, on a, an estate where people were throwing bricks and rocks at us. And there was a there was a group of people that turned out a public order department who at the time were called the Territorial Support Group. And there were literally three big vans full of big guys and girls uh, who come and dealt with anything like that. And having seen them in action, and I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. You know, that, that for me, that looks good. That looks good fun. So I decided after five years chasing car thieves, I'd move on and move to a public order branch. And that, that department at the time had various hats, had various responsibilities from public order to policing football demonstrations. Also, at the time, there was a, a real big counter-terrorism threat. So there was a counter-terrorism element to it as well. Early and mid-90s was um, a, a real busy period in London for uh, the IRA were planting many bombs uh, across the capital and we would we would generally be either sent to a bomb call or on occasions post detonation we'd go and help clear up the mess uh, and bag up evidence and things like that so again t- to turn up in the in the center of the city of London and see the devastation that a lorry bomb had caused in the likes of Bishopsgate where millions and millions and tens of millions of pounds worth of damage office blocks blown to smithereens right in front of your eyes is is something again that's sort of is marked on my on my memory um i think the ira are quite notorious of being very meticulous with their bombings and everyone always knew it, it was the ira but maybe the individuals got away did we did you struggle to catch them was that the job of you or was that the job of like the Irish police or did you work in tandem? No, we were we were well down the chain of investigation, to be fair. Um, we were the overt element, so we were the police and we would try to disrupt that and we would patrol uh, with armed officers trying to identify potential what they call cells, so active service units of IRA terrorists working around London and you're right you're 100% correct at the time they you know they, they 
they're not the kind of terrorists that would martyr themselves. They always wanted to get back. And to be fair, they would always take a particular element of their device back to prove that they planted it. So they would never look for confrontation. It was all about publicity and maximizing their 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 gain, their policy. They wouldn't really target many, although people unfortunately have, have been killed in IRA bombing, and I'm not belittling that in any way shape or form but a lot of the bombs that they planted they would give warnings and they would target uh, industrial um, commercial areas where there wasn't many people at all uh, it doesn't take away anything that they've done i'm not i'm not defending them in one in any shape or form i'm just sort of explaining the question that you asked about the fact that they would always try and get away by this point in your career you've lost friends colleagues you know you've been in situations like that car chase where you've got potentially your life in your hands and other colleagues in your hands and you've also had to deal with situations where you could feel vulnerable like the ra bombings how did that affect you as an officer were you more scared than you were were you just more motivated to go out and catch these criminals these terrorists yeah i mean i can't think of any incident where i was scared at the time because i've always felt that i had support around me especially on the territorial support group that you know there was never less than sort of eight of you. So you always felt that, you know, I don't want to say that nothing would ever happen, you know. I, so I never felt immortal or anything like that, you know, or, or that that I was constantly safe. But you do, it doesn't really go through your head, to be honest with you. Like, you, like, you, like, like you've asked in the question, you, your, your prime focus is about catching the people, you know, doing what they're doing and taking them off the street. Um you do see devastation, you do see people killed, um, you do see victims of crime and the, the effect that that has on them. So it's it, it, it drives you, it motivates you more to, to remove people like that from the street. And, you know, I was told at a very early age in my career that your job is to take them off the streets. Don't, don't get frustrated about what happens in the court or what sentence they get. That's nothing to do with you. Just take these people off the streets. And I've always remembered that and always tried to do that. I mean, again, I look back and even on the TSG, we lost an officer going through the door. Um, she she was, we were there to detain a, a guy that was wanted and she was stabbed by him inside the premises. Um, absolutely devastating for those people that were involved in that. And some officers I know didn't recover as a result of that. There's there's post traumatic stress involved. Um, so, but that but it's the minority, you know. I mean, it, I'm not the only police. I'm, I'm sure every police officer has suffered colleagues and and friends that they've lost. But we still, you know, you still carry on. You do it. You you do it. It makes you more motivated, like you say, to to remove these people from the street. Do you feel like um, maybe in present day that thankfully not as many officers are getting killed because of the safety precautions that are in place um things such as stab vests etc were they about and do you believe the protection is better now yeah good question owen yeah i do think the protection's better when i look back to what i had originally um like i say i'd go out at three o'clock in the morning on my own we had no no stab vests then a wooden truncheon and a radio that was pretty much it um, and you look now, whereas the frontline police officers now have got their vests, they've got an extendable ass baton. They, a lot of them have got taser as well, uh, which is a, a great bit of kit used in the right hands. 
CS spray, so and cameras, you know, cam cameras, although it won't protect you, it, it might deter people or help convict them. So unfortunately, it, it takes incidents of attacks on both public and police to change uh, the mindset of the politicians and the government to protect and provide protection for for the police officers and that carry out the job they do. And like I like I alluded to earlier, when when my my mate was killed early on in my career, and it wasn't even uh, an arrestable offence to take someone off the street with a knife, you know that. And I did mention it earlier that 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 wasn't just the sole driver for it, but government did change policy as a result of similar incidences like that. So so yes, it is important that they keep considering what's happening to frontline police and and looking at other measures to to ensure they're safe. On the topic of weapons, what kind of weapons have you dealt with in terms of uh, against you and for you as well? Have you what weapons have you hold have licenses for, etc.? Yeah, I mean the the UK police are are um in the minority across the world in that the lion's share of police officers don't carry firearms. You know, and I I still think that's the right decision. There is a time and a place. It's quite it's quite a responsibility to carry a firearm and again i know incidences of where people have had to discharge their weapons and it's had a a, a detrimental effect on them uh, because of what's happened so i think it's important that officers have a choice um i made that choice and i made that decision to to become an armed police officer i i fortunately had never suffered any severe assaults i'd never suffered any stabbings and i'd never been shot and i probably it's probably the same for many, many, many police officers. But obviously you only hear, the public only hear about the bad ones. And it, there are also many, many police officers who have suffered uh, serious assault, stabbings and have been shot. So I made that decision that I uh, to become a firearms officer. Just looping back there, I mean... <laughs> If you're a copper and I was a criminal, I wouldn't. I wouldn't try ever go <laughs> with you. The size of you, put me on my ass. So. <laughs> well, it's always it's always the small ones. It's always the small ones you gotta watch. Max, mate, you gotta watch out. When they start leaping through your legs, you know you got a problem. <laughs> so, um, what caused you to carry a weapon? Be able to carry a weapon because, like you said, not every single police officer can carry a weapon. Yeah, how did you get that opportunity? Well, as I mentioned at the beginning, there's the good thing about the police is that there's there's numerous departments and units that you can specialise in. Um, one of those is the armed response vehicle, which is the, the armed police that you probably uh, have seen more more of floating around who are in uniform and they would deal with firearms calls. I made the decision to join a it's a covert unit, but not it's not an undercover unit. It's a covert unit in that you wear plain clothes and you're carriage of your weapon is concealed so it's not you wouldn't deal with um, firearms calls per se so I I made that decision to join that unit and as part of that requirement to be in that unit um, you had to be a firearms officer so it wasn't the decision I wasn't made by me I, I want to you know I want to carry a gun I want to deal with crime I want to challenge people out there in London that are carrying weapons more for me it was around career, career progression uh, looking at specialising into a different unit, and and with that came the requirement to carry a weapon. Back to Max's question about the weapons that you train on, and at the time we trained on a Glock 17, which is a semi-automatic pistol, and also a, a Heckler and Koch MP5, which is a, like a carbine, maybe what you'd know as a submachine gun. 
which was a a, a a secondary a secondary weapon for us which i must say is a favorite of ours on warzone as well the mp5 if you do play call of duty that's a familiar one but um it must be a massive difference obviously to actually have that at your fingertips in real life than on a video game that we've experienced yeah the mp5 is a great a great weapon to be fair with you it's really really easy to shoot it points itself to, to a degree um there's no hardly any recoil over 50 meters for example it's it's pinpoint accurate it's a fantastic bit of kit you get the occasional stoppage where it it, it jams basically and that's why you would have a a, a a secondary weapon which would be your personal sidearm so to speak your personal pistol which is not easy to shoot to be honest i'd had no firearms experience previously and I found the course quite difficult. Uh, again, uh, going back to movies, if you can shoot a pistol accurately over further than 20 meters, then I'll take my hat off to you. Uh, it's it's a difficult weapon to fire. So yeah, the actual course on both weapons is three weeks and it's quite intensive. And there's there's various elements to it as well. You have to cover vehicle drills. So for example, calling someone out of a vehicle that you've stopped that may have a firearm. So although we were going into a different unit that wouldn't do that, you've got to be mindful that you're an asset to the police. And if you're in an area where there's potentially somebody and they need to get an armed unit to you quick, it could well be you that deals with that. So you deal with both vehicle containment and also house containment, which is, again, an armed person in a house. So it's not just about firing a weapon on a range. It's around tactics and searching as well. You mentioned you did want to go into a particular unit um, after that being trained with firearms. Um, and as we know from the title, you have done some royalty work. Did that help you lead on to that? And was that always your initial plan? Yeah, it was. Yeah, there was a there's a, a department at the time called Royalty Protection that is basically a group of protection officers who travel around with members of the royal family and provide protection from potential aggressors. And that was the unit I worked worked in. And as a requirement for that, it, it's a necessity to carry a firearm. There's various elements to training. It's probably one of, not the hardest, it's not, not the hardest, but it's one of the hardest uh, to get into from a courses perspective. So you have to be the top level driver. So you spend four weeks doing driving, at fast speeds, vehicle maneuvers, anti-hijack training, which is basically careering around a, a disused airfield trying to do manoeuvres, evasive manoeuvres, J-turns, Y-turns, things like that. Um, and then the National Protection Officers course itself, which is four weeks long, is very, very intense. Deals with planning journeys, foot drills. So you'd be walking with a, a, a principal, as we call them, getting them from A to B safely. Vehicle drills, again, convoy work, getting them from A to B safely. And built into that training, obviously, you'd get attacked by fellow police officers or, or taking the role as an aggressor so you would you would get uh, like a roadblock for example and you'd have to utilize the evasive vehicle maneuvers you've learned whilst firing your weapon out the window to try and neutralize a threat that's placed against you definitely living those movies there must have been a little bit of enjoyment in that as well surely um i mean that sounds pretty yeah. cool for us to be able to do um any enjoyment of driving a car fast shooting a gun out the window yeah, I, I always think about the Hot Fuzz film where people, you know, he was asked if he ever jumped through the air and fired you good at the same time. You know, it's a bit, <laughs> I, I, I hop back to that, you know, and, and like you say, when you're 
when, when literally you are looking behind you, reversing at speed, trying to spin the wheel round, your colleague's throwing a smoke grenade out, you're in a, a world of panic, adrenaline, another colleague to your right is firing rounds and the cartridge cases are pinging off your and going down the front of your shirt and burning your chest. You know, it's... Uh, it is a high octane, high adrenaline situation, but you need to train like that. You know, you, you, someone once said to me, train hard, fight easy, you know, and it's important that you train, train, train so that when you come across a situation in real life, you actually go into muscle memory and you deal with it to the best of your ability. So, so yeah, it was massive fun. I loved it. It was brilliant fun. Um, the training, we, you know, we had to train regularly. It wasn't just that course. You would go back, you know, every few months and retrain and retrain again. And I actually did a um, another element, which was at the time, which allowed allowed us to carry even more weaponry and deal with deployments overseas, which was uh, it, it, it was termed um, high risk, low infrastructure training. So you'd go to areas around the around the globe where there was low infrastructure, so not much uh, support from other units, not not very good hospitals, things like that. But it's a high risk area. Uh, and there's there's many of those some some countries like Pakistan that you would perhaps not think of because of their they're quite advanced countries, but then others you'd think of of you know for example Sudan, uh, places like that in Africa, um, it's important that you have an extra tier of training, extra weaponry training in first aid, ed- enhanced first aid at that, putting in drips because you don't have that support in the country that you're at so now you've finished all of your training you've come out trained as a um, national protection officer is that straight to buckingham palace then or who as you called them principals which one was you posted with first and what's the process of that yeah it's a bit like the monopoly board yeah straight straight do not pass go go straight to buckingham palace queen the queen's coming out at 10 o'clock uh follow her car and that's pretty much it. So you're you're paired up with an experienced uh, officer, and you know without going too much into the tactics, obviously because they're still current tactics that take place now. You form a protection package of protection officers, and um, yeah, you you literally help the principal that you're with uh, travel from A to B um, when she when she or he are walking around an environment then you're mirroring their manoeuvres and where they are and you're considering constantly places of safety. If there was something to happen now, where would I take that individual? Could we get to the car quickly? Could we get to a, a, a an area of cover from fire? Considering uh, all the training you had, was it um, almost as you expected with your first, uh, let's say your first experience of driving around uh, either the queen or another member of the royal family was it um as you expected or was it more or less or well to be honest max having come straight from training where literally around every corner there was a guy with a massive samurai sword or a machine gun you know i was i was absolutely astonished that i'd got the queen back on day one in one piece and nothing had actually happened <laughs> it was <laughs> yeah it was a massive uh anti-climax to be to be honest because i think i took her to harrods and then brought her back and absolutely nothing happened and it was you know it was great <laughs> but you are essentially straight in there you know there's no tea and biscuits with her majesty beforehand they go okay this is the plan you are straight in the driver's seat effectively you are her bodyguard you are her you have to take a bullet for, for our queen <laughs> yeah exactly and i and i i 
couldn't be prouder to have to have worked with all the members of the royal family and even on the day I left you know when when the queen walks into the room even the fact that I've spoke to her many 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 times I've you know I've worked around her for many many years there's a there's an aura around the queen that she's an amazing lady she's incredible she it was a privilege to work and yeah I, I would have you know I know it sounds cheesy but I would have taken a bullet for her that was my job, but also she's a fantastic person. So, yeah, I mean, there, there is two tiers within royalty protection. There's the sort of personal protection officer who would travel day in, day out with that one principal and wouldn't move principals generally. Um, and they build up a nice rapport together. Um, and that's really important. And then there's the close protection officers that you start at. Um, and they're the sort of support officers. So you're all the same team. You're all trained to the same level. And it just goes on experience. So I did the close protection element support to all the members of the royal family for about five years before I was selected and posted to a particular member of the royal family to work with. And um, what are they like? Are they generally like normal, like down to earth people? I know we see them, we put them above us because obviously they're the royal family. But can you have a normal conversation with them? And have you ever, ever maybe made a mistake how do they take that jokingly or are they serious with you yeah i mean they're all different you know they're human beings they're, they're just like you and i you know the queen's you know currently an 80 80 plus year old lady you know and you'll get certain members of the royal family that like prince harry for example you know he's a young fit military guy who's who's he's great to chat to the queen's very different you know she's much more formal um and and you know with regards to your second part of your question, I, I do remember early days when I was up in Balmoral in Scotland where the Queen's residence is. I was following behind her car and one of our roles, and again, it probably doesn't sound like protection to you guys, but one of our roles is that we, we as she approaches a locked gate, we jump out, we open the gate for her and she, the Queen goes through nice and sedately. It is an element of protection because if she's stuck still at a gate, potentially she's a risk, but to be fair... It's mainly good good manners and there's an element of soft skills in the protection world. So I jumped out of the car, all keen, ran up to the gate, realised I'd left the keys in the car. And the Queen just waved a set of keys out the window at me and said, I think you need these. So I mean, it was... So I just felt, I felt like, you know, so small. Just, but she just had a little smile on her face and thought... I've got a, I've got another new guy out of the box, you know. So, uh, so yeah, you get moments like that that are fun. But um, no, they're 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 all good. I've I've not had any problem. I know the royal family are getting a hard time at the moment, and that's a real shame. You know, I've 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 not got anything bad to say about any of them, to be honest. When you were picked as personal protection, who was the first uh, member of the royal family that you were posted with? Well, actually, um, it was on the back of the Olympics that um, the Olympics was a busy period for us, London Olympics 2012. And a lot of people helped out um, and had to step up into the personal role because of the amount of um, the amount of deployments that were going on. And if you remember, Prince Harry rolled straight out to Afghanistan, not around about the time of the Olympics. And as a result of the fact that I'd worked with him a fair bit on the Olympics, I was asked to go and I'd done the enhanced training for the high risk low infrastructure i was asked to go out to afghanistan with him cover his deployment out there along with 
many other officers or a few other officers. But yeah, that was probably my first experience of doing personal protection for a particular member of the family. The reason that we um, we deployed, because a lot of people ask this question, you know, at the end of the day, he's, he's in the military, Prince Harry's in the military, and you're just, you know, you're just London bobbies. Why on earth, you know, do, did you go out there with him? Uh, but there was some concern around um, local insurgents being, managing to get into the camp at Camp Bastion uh, in disguise of cleaners or contractors and things like that. So it was important that we, we provided a, a protective shell around him while he was there. And the military do things obviously very differently. They would probably do it hugely co in a covert way. And that has a detrimental effect to the principle itself. So if you imagine trying to walk from your house now down to the shops, being surrounded by 12 people, you would soon get annoyed with it and fed up with it. So the element of, and I alluded to this earlier, the element of the covert aspect of our role was that we, we didn't do things in a, a massively overt way. We didn't sometimes sort of stealth and is just as an important way of, of delivering protection as just going massively over the top. If someone doesn't know who you are or how many protection officers are around or where you're going to go, then that's that's a, that's a great tactic. If you see a guy walking towards you with 12 12 big lumps who are got curly whirly earpieces and sunglasses on, then you're going to assume that that person in the middle of the bubble is important or valuable. So we, we actually flipped that on its head and did it, did it in a slightly different way. So it's important to us not to have lots and lots of special forces guys who, to be fair, had a massive job out there to do anyway. So they didn't have the time. When he, when, you know, when he was flying, he was safe and secure, a thousand feet up in a, in a tin bath, you know, in a hatchy. He was fairly safe. Um, down on the ground there was some concern and also he knows us you know he knows each of us if he's been given a uh, a group of guys from the military he might not know he might not trust he might not tell them where he wants to go or and obviously we've all signed although the military have as well we've all signed the official secrets act and you know we'll listen to stories constantly that he's talking to or he's he's having conversations home with other members you know the queen for example We'll overhear that and he knows that's fine because we've never disclosed anything. So it's important for him in that environment to have people he knows around him. Can't even disclose anything on the disclosed podcast. Excuse the pun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously the tactics that are used are still current. So, you know, I don't want to discuss any more operational, you know, decisions around that. But um, it's important. I mean, we, the, what, the, the camp was attacked while he was there. I'm not saying it was as a result of him being there, but the camp was attacked by Taliban. So it became apparent that it was important we were there. Was there much of a relationship between you and other military personnel? Obviously, your special forces. Was there the kind of kind of vibe that you were above them or they were above you? Did you get along? Were they like, they didn't really want you around? Do you know what I mean? They didn't want you getting in their way of doing their job. Not that you would. No, I understand the question. I mean, they loved our kit. We had, we had very very different weapons to them. Um, and out there, we would we would carry what what was called a Heckler and Koch E36, which which they loved. They didn't have access to that at the time. Yeah, it's not it's not the same camaraderie, I would think, that, that between the military units. But they were fine with us. I, I mean, you'd have to ask them. They they appeared fine to be to be honest. And um, yeah, we had a relationship with. There was an element of of what we call QRF, Quick Reaction Force. So if he was to to ditch his aircraft, then we had to work closely with 
with pilots and special forces to ensure a, a safe recovery of of him. So we we had a working relationship, but at the end of the day, you know, they're they're experienced military. We're we to a degree they probably just think we're London bobbies, you know. And um, although there's a there is an SF element of our training that we do, it's nowhere near the level that the military guys did. Okay, so while you were um, working with other members of the royal family and stuff, did you ever bump into any sort of uh, celebrities or any sort of popular people um, while you're on the job? Yeah, I mean, by the very nature of the principles that we're working with, you know, we would we would always be at functions where there's either important dignitaries or or celeb, you know, in celebrities and in the role we're at. It, I, I wouldn't say that I met many because to me, if you meet someone, you shake their hand and you sort of chat to them and things like that. And that's not what I was there for. Occasionally in a in a private element, you know, because we covered um, the principals when they went places privately. And I remember the the um, the Invictus Games, which Prince Harry did for the, the wounded and injured six soldiers. Um, the theme tune for that, the sort of uh, anthem was was produced by Chris Martin from Coldplay. And we went. I took uh, Prince Harry to the recording studio and Chris Martin was just chilled, just sat there chatting away to me, telling me about Coldplay. And it's things like that. And you just, <laughs> yeah, you just pinch yourself and think, wow, you know. But yeah, no, I've been, you know, I've I've spoke to David Beckham and Madonna and you know, I took the Queen to see President Obama and you, I don't know, hundred, hundreds probably of people that wow. I'd class as dignitaries or, or, or celebrities. Um, and it's the same for... You know, when we travel to different countries, we would always meet pretty much the head of state or of the country that we visit. So, yeah, sometimes when you're you're stood there and, you know, you're next to a president or whoever it may be, you just sort of pinch yourself and actually think, well, you know, I'm just a I'm just a guy from them from a little village that decided to join the police and change chase car crime criminals. And, and now I'm ended up stood next to, you know, whatever Beyonce or whatever, you know, it's, it's just one of them. One of them odd moments and something that stays in my mind. Yeah, incredible. And um, you have been in so many situations, met so many people. Uh, any life lessons you picked up? Any pieces of advice that the us as 16, 17-year-olds can take on board for our life that we have ahead of us and all the listeners? I think the important one is that chase your dreams. If you want to do it, you can do it. Even if you don't know at the time what you want to do, just just have a think. If if there's something out there or a, a particular field that you want to go into, uh, go for it. You know, there's nothing. St- I didn't have many education qualifications. It's all about hard work, motivation, enthusiasm. Chase your dreams. Do what you want to do. Be kind to people on the way. You know, they'll help you out. It's all about looking out for each other. No matter where you work, if you work in a factory or in a car dealership, you know, it's important that you look after your friends and your colleagues that you work with. And like I say, be kind to everyone because because I think the experience I've had that if you're kind to people, they're kind back. And if you help people out, they'll help you out. And certainly I've been helped out on many, many occasions in my life. And I'm grateful for that. And I've always looked to reciprocate. So, um, yeah, all, all I'd say to you three is, chase your dreams, go for what you want and be kind to those around you. I think this is a perfect time for another one of Owen's motivational quotes as well. Uh, We've missed out for a couple of weeks ago. So um, lots of people say that 
the sky's the limit, but they do forget there are footprints on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. Once again, that's great. Invasion for you. <laughs> well, John, I think we could all sit here and listen to your stories for hours on end. Uh, I feel like you've really taken the wheel with this one. Uh, we haven't given much, but in the last hour, I've managed to be left in awe and hysterics. So thank you very much for coming on and sharing just a few. It's only been just a few of your incredible stories. You're, you're welcome. It's, it's been fun and uh, I hope people well, I hope people may join the police as a result of that because it's still a great job. Well, I've had a lovely time, boys. I hope you've had a great time as well. Yeah, I've had an amazing time. Thank you very much, John. I have, yes. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this has been our first guest episode. We've made it one full rotation of four weeks through. We will be back in your ears next sunday for episode five which could be i'm gonna allude to it now our first video episode do not hold us to it it might happen fingers crossed thank you boys and thank you very much john it's been a pleasure thank you thank you guys see you on the other Cheers, side people. bye see you in a bit bye 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 goodbye <laughs>